Work in progress. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really excited about this. I have with me Freddie Silva. He's a best-selling author, leading researcher in ancient civilizations, restricted history. He specializes in sacred sites and their interaction, interaction with consciousness. He's published six books in six languages, including Legacy of the Gods, The Divine Blueprint, The Lost Art of Resurrection, The First Templar Nation, and his newest book, which we'll be discussing, Uncovering Earth's, uh, The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's Pre-Civilization, which deals a lot with the gods of the pre-flood, pre which is what I want to get into. Um, because uh, thank you for joining me, by the way. Oh, thanks, Richard. Um, I a lot of my fan, a lot of my uh, audience knows the story of the Anunnaki, but I wanted to get more in depth into exactly who these people were, because um, I saw interviews with you on other shows, and it looks like you went really deep into the subject, and I'm very interested in it. Yeah, I mean, the um, I've tried to rehabilitate the Anunnaki for the simple reason that most people have picked it up from Zechariah Sitchin. And uh, half of his stuff, as, as good as, as his stuff was, he got a lot of it wrong. Uh, a lot of it was mistranslated. We don't know why. Maybe he just did it because he didn't know enough about Sumerian or because he was trying to foster a certain point of view. Uh, but if you look at the original story, which is actually, most is actually in Ethiopian, uh, you look at the Anunnaki and they were actually the helpers of humanity. Uh, there was one group of people who were related to the Anunnaki, who were the watchers. They were like the craftspeople, the sages who surrounded the central group of, of uh, Anu, uh, people of Anu. And uh, there was a small group of them that uh, misbehaved and we only get to hear about them. And what I wanted to do was find out more about the central core group of the, what they call the Lords of Anu and find out who they really were. And it turns out that in every ancient culture in the world, right down to the Hopi as well, they actually consider them to be the assistants of humanity. And in fact, without them, we wouldn't be here right now. Uh, I'm talking now back at the end of the Younger Dryas when we had the big flood. And if you read the 184 survived, a group of gods that survived the flood, and they were in charge of helping the human survivors restart civilization. So you have these pods of activity around the world. And it is exactly at these locations where we have humans suddenly discovering agriculture and animal husbandry and megalithic building construction or all the things that make, you know, the laws that make civilized society uh, a done deal. And in every culture, they talk about these people. They're very tall. They sometimes had elongated skulls. They had red hair with green eyes or blonde with blue eyes. And they were always very light skinned. And their um, nickname was Shining Ones because they had to keep anointing themselves with oil. But there was also a metaphor because the metaphor of shining usually denotes a person who is very knowledgeable about the laws of the universe or the laws of nature and how to work with them. So the, this is what I was trying to figure out, not just who the Anunnaki were, what their mission was here on Earth, how long they'd been here, and also how did they connect with the other gods around the world. And it turns out they were one and the same group of people that we find from Egypt all the way to the Pacific, all the way down to South America. It's just that they called them by different names. And until now, we had no idea what the names meant. So I tried to ask local cultures the meaning of these words, and it turns out they're one and the same group of people. It's like an international group 
of uh, uh, sages and wisdom keepers. Uh, and then after a flood, they just disappeared, went somewhere else. We have no, no idea where they went. So that was the thrust of my inquiry to find out more about them and try to, you know, put them on a higher pedestal that they've been given a lot of credit for so far. Um, and then does it, does it ever say um, where they were from? Do you think they might have come from off planet or do you think they were um, from here? It sounds like they were from here because every culture was very comfortable with them. So depending on how you look at aliens, uh, aliens covers a very big territory. They were described as human-like, but not quite human. They were much taller than average people. Uh, they definitely were, like I said, just said before, with the, uh, the, the shining appearance of something that it kept smearing on their skin. But people were not unnerved by them. They were very comfortable with them. And the one thing I kept hearing about again and again was an association between the gods and Orion, the constellation, and specifically the belt stars. And you hear this in Yucatan, you hear it in South America, uh, you hear it in uh, the Iberian Peninsula, all the way from the Mediterranean, all the way through Persia, India, and China. And I always thought, because um, ancient cultures tend to speak in metaphors and symbols, and I began to ask local people, you know, was this sort of a metaphor, the, the association with Orion? And the surviving wisdom keepers of these tribes keep saying, no. They were actually from Orion. There was a time here on Earth when we had the ability to travel between worlds. And this is not just a, a symbolic gesture. They could physically do this. They could reappear somewhere else. Uh, they had complete control of the laws of nature. So I looked more into this. And it turns out that uh, in Egypt and also in India, they talk about these uh, structures, what they call the bija in, in Egypt. And they, they're kind of like a metal throne. They seem to be kind of a, a specific designed tool that enables people to sit in a special building, like a pyramid, and go from A to B. A bit like teleportation. And um, the more I keep researching this, the more they seem to be saying that, there was a time when these people were able to have this ability to connect between worlds. And it was only at the end of the flood when they said, okay, we've put humans, you know, we, we managed to rescue whatever human survives and we give them the accoutrements of civilization. And now we're going to go, we're going to disappear and we're going to retract the ladder to heaven. And I thought that was the weirdest thing to say. And I picked up the story in China where they said, yes, there was a one point where the gods, after establishing civilization, they retracted the ladder to heaven. Because every once in a while before that, they used to allow one lucky human to travel with them on occasion to the belt stars of Orion. And the idea was that you show humans who were hunter-gatherers back then a different way of living. And this person would come back with their wise eyes open, as you probably imagine, and they would tell the other hunter-gatherers, you know what, we don't have to kill each other. We don't have to drag women by the hair into caves. And there's a better way of doing things. I have seen something incredible. And here's my story. And these, of course, become the wisdom keepers, the people that were the intermediaries between humans and the gods. And at one point, uh, like I said, after the flood, this ladder to heaven was retracted. And I always wondered why. And I keep hearing again and again that the idea was that there was a time when gods coexisted with humans here on Earth. And they call it a golden age. And uh, we're always very uh, sort of looking back to this point in time.
uh, with great affection, except we were never there. Our predecessors were there. And uh, they said that at one point, this particular cycle of life, humans have to learn to be gods or godlike. And this is why we have that sort of lack of connection. And we feel that lack of connection to people who we now describe as godlike. Because we have all the, they, they gave us all the accoutrements of civilization. And now we have to understand how to apply these and be a better people among ourselves. So this is the job of what's been going on for the last 12,000 years. Uh, anybody in India and uh, Native America and the Yucatan will understand this. The earth works in 4,000 year cycles and this cycle is coming to a close. And uh, this cycle is all about greed. It's about removal of the spiritual aspect. It's about our devastation of nature. And this is going to put us in a position kind of where we are now, where we were questioning at the very end of the cycle, what have we done to our culture and ourselves on the planet? Uh, why have we removed ourselves from a great spiritual concept that we were given 12,000 years ago? And how can we get back to that point? So everything that was surrounding this right now, and I'm sure this current virus is part of that understanding as well. None of this is by accident. I think that we're getting to question the decisions that we've made that have shown us that we cannot survive as humans in this present cat uh, um, capitalistic culture. It just doesn't work. And we're asking these questions in order to take the next step forward. And I think this is what the gods were talking about when they said, you know, we're gonna cut that umbilical cord between us and you. You've got the, uh, the manual, you have to apply it now and you can be just like us, just to prove. You don't need to be looking out there for salvation, you can look it within yourselves. You have the power to do this by yourselves. And it's a very spiritual concept to be sure, but every ancient culture talks about this being a very practical application of the development and self-development of human spirituality. This is the way it's always been. So they're literally empowering us to empower ourselves. Well, I mean, it makes me want to think of a couple of things, but right off the top of my head, I just thought, why, do we, why are we so warlike then? You know what I mean? Um, we, they, they don't want us to be that way. But I've heard it be—I've heard it referred to as a demiurge before. That uh, our 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 warlike ways are a demiurge, which is like like a, since we're demigods, since we're spawns of the gods, that would be a demiurge. That would be like something acting off of something we got from the gods. Do you think that's possible, or do you think they lived a different way? Oh, I, they had their own problems. Uh, and this is where the fallen watchers come into the whole picture. And while we get the wrong sense of the Anunnaki, uh, this is the, the one story that seems to be uh, more prevalent than any other, especially in Western culture. Uh, like the Book of Enoch is a classic example. Uh, they, to use that as an example, there was a small group of watchers who... De uh, defied orders not to interact with human women, and certainly not to breed with them because their DNA was very different from ours. And uh, the women that uh, they married uh, gave birth to infants. And of course, most of them died in childbirth. Uh, there's a story in uh, Oklahoma with the Wichita Native Americans that still talk about the gods taking wives, human wives, and they basically they died during childbirth, as you can imagine. It didn't work. Uh, so this is what the, part of the problem is there was a certain group of uh, unusual people who really gave human beings who were undeveloped the wrong information. When you do that to people, when they haven't had a level of development, all chaos breaks loose. And I think it's that group of people 
from whom we've learned a lot of bad ideas, including war. Uh, and the gods themselves at one point were also warring amongst themselves. And uh, the uh, things that I've read in India and also Egypt talk about a time when, yeah, there was a total assimilation by a small group of the gods with the uh, material element of earth. They became so enamored with the materialization and the physicalization of the world that they fell prey to these, you know, wanton desires like, uh, you know, wanton fornication or war and greed, uh, the things that we have as well. But equally uh, uh, in that respect, we also have a lot of people today and the vast majority of humans who are much more into cooperation and a spiritual angle. Uh, I don't mean religion, I mean a real sort of truly spiritual outlook on life. So I think we learned, there was a group of people on earth that from whom we learned a lot of bad ideas and they've been always within us. So the idea is that the, uh, the, the, and the uniqueness of humanity is that we have the potential to use our will uh, it's the one place in the universe where we do have um, uh, the ability to use our will to do what we may. And you can use it for right action or wrong action. It depends how motivated you are. Uh, and I think that's so much part and parcel of, you know, of the incarnation process here on Earth. Uh, every ancient culture talks about this as well. That you know, you're born with the right tools and then you have the choice to either apply the tools for right action or wrong action. And the idea is that you try to live your life as an example, as a good example to others and to yourself, and develop your, yourself through your experience, you die, you are reborn somewhere else, and you develop as a spiritual being. That's the, the big concept. So we did learn some bad ideas from people who, uh, who were part of a, a highly spiritual group who tried to do the right action, but always there was a small group who was so enamored with everything that's happened here on earth that it basically overshadowed their mandate. Uh, they fell by the wayside. And this is where we start discussing things like the fallen people or the evil people. Uh, evil necessarily doesn't really exist. It's a point of view. I mean, dictators think they're doing good things and we, you know, anybody else who's uh, has a spiritual bent to them will say, well, no, they're evil. Well, no, from their point of view, we're evil because we're all very goody-goody. It's a, evil is a, is a point of view. It's not necessarily a thing. So, yeah, we did inherit this, uh, but also we have the potential to change it to be much better people. And from what I see, and I do a lot of traveling around the world, I see a lot of more good things happening everywhere. It's just that you don't get to hear about them in the media because the media is so focused on the things that challenge us, uh, not because of any nefarious reason, but because they need to sell newspapers and conflict sells uh, newspapers. That's the whole point behind it. So listening to good news in the media, it's rare. Uh, in fact, the only time in the last two months I saw anything good in the media was yesterday when they, uh, the Supreme Court upheld the fact that half of Oklahoma belongs to the Native Americans. I think, wow, that's, you never get to hear that anymore. Yeah, so, you, you know, I think we are making progress. Uh, if you look around you and compare to where we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, as human beings, we're doing a lot better. I mean, we're, you know, women are getting more rights. Uh, black people are getting more rights. Uh, gay people are getting more rights. Not everywhere. Not, not going around killing everybody wantonly. In fact, right now, 98% of the world is actually at peace which is extraordinary given the last 4,000 years of our history. So we're making progress. It's, it's getting there, but it, it requires uh, a huge amount of people to be focused on doing right action in order to make the others realize the error of their way.
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, now I want to go go back to um, partially. I don't know if this is something that Sitchin said because I think it's in other tablets too. It's about the genetic manipulation. Like it's in the tablet specifically the Atrahasis. The Atrahasis talks about the Anunnaki genetically manipulated a man, uh, the first man. And then if you look into other cultures as well, you would know more about this. And that's what I want to see. I think in Australia there's a culture that says that they, they genetically modified uh, the first man as well. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. Do you think we were genetically modified by these gods or, um, or how do you think that went? I think it's yes and no. Uh, I think there's not enough of the story remains for us to make a judgment on that. We have fragments of the story around the world. And there is a suggestion that there was some kind of uh, genetic experimentation. Uh, and I, uh, looking at what the Egyptians were saying about how what happened after the flood, how they basically, not many of them survived. I mean, the gods also had their own problems with the flood. A lot of them were killed. And okay, their bloodline was very different. Their, their power literally was in the blood itself. So in order to maintain and do what they could do, they had to interbreed. Now, that only goes so far within a couple of thousand years. If you go from the end of the Younger Dryas in 9,700 BC all the way to the earliest pharaohs at 3,000 BC, now you've got you know, a lot of time where you've been inbreeding and you've got a small group of people with whom you can inbreed. That's going to create problems. And one of the things that I do agree with in terms of the Sumerian tablets is that I think that they were working out a way to get some to find a certain way where they could interbreed successfully with humans in order to propagate their progeny. Um, there was some success uh, in Egypt to talk about the time when Egypt was ruled by people who were half human, half divine. So they went from the gods to the half human, half divine. And then in one of the pyramid texts, they actually talk about the moment where the first pharaoh of a purely human bloodline takes the throne in 3000 BC. They even list his name, his mena. Uh, so you've got to wonder who are these half human, half divine, which again, brings us back to the question. They must have succeeded at one point in these genetic experiments, and I don't think they were done for nefarious reasons. Uh, I'm not sort of in, in that particular camp. I think they were trying to basically save themselves uh, and their own culture, because they knew they were dying to survive a sinking continent in the middle of the Atlantic called Atoll, and they survived in the Appalachia, and. Uh, when the Cherokee uh, finally got uh, to meet them, uh, it's thousands of years ago, we don't know when it was, and uh, they said that this was part of a dying culture and they were, di they were dying because they couldn't interbreed with women, uh, they died during childbirth, and they had to breed among themselves and they had lost hope. They basically said, we can't do it, we can't succeed in this, we are so genetically disabled that uh, we've just basically become drunks uh, and we're going around just uh, killing each other for fun because we know we're all going to die. It was a terrible, sad story, uh, but it tells me that the genetic experiments were taking place in order for them to survive. And they were not always successful. Uh, there were mutations, according to the Sumerian text, of things that, or abominations that took place. However, there was another section of the Sumerian text which are very clear that the uh, that naughty group of watchers that uh, did have children with human wives and the children survived, 
they gave birth to giants. This is the second generation of children. And those with the real problem, okay, this is before the flood now, 11,000 years ago. Um, they said that it was the Nephilah, which means the children of Orion, by the way, uh, in the ancient language, the Nephilah, the second iteration of children from the fallen watchers that were the real problem. They couldn't handle being here in the physical world. They took the cannibalism, slaughter, and just wanton destruction. Uh, even humans were frightening them. And it's kind of funny when you find that humans were, were saying good things about the gods, but it was the children, the second group of the children of the offspring of the watchers that were the real problem. And that's what generated the flood in order to wipe all this out because they were killing the humans left, right, and center. Today, without the intervention of the Anunnaki and the Lords of Anu specifically, we would be living, actually we wouldn't be living, we'd have a planet of red-haired giant people who are cannibals and not very pleasant at all. So that's where my position is on the genetic experimentation. Um, I, do, I am aware that there's people who are going around saying, well, here's a statuette of a human with a, uh, a serpent head on it. This is where metaphor is lost on a lot of people. These things were not meant to be taken literally. It's a bit like saying, look, the Egyptian pharaoh, uh, who is the uh, head of uh, wisdom, he has the head of an ibis bird. That shows that they were mixing birds with humans. Uh, it's absolute nonsense. The metaphor was to teach humans who are illiterate that when you see the image of this person with the beautiful head of a bird, that is the bird, uh, that is the god of wisdom, because they equated the ibis with a, with a great elegance. And what does wisdom do to you if not it makes you a very elegant being? And the, so they created this kind of anthropomorphic imagery in order to share the information with illiterate people. It's a wonderful device. So when you see these little statuettes of, you know, a human with a reptilian head, that's not what was physically going on. It was representing the fact that the, the name of these people were called the people of the serpent. It was a kind of badge of office. Uh, it was a bit like being a fireman, you know. Um, they were called the people of the serpent all around the world because the serpent symbolizes the uh, currents of the earth force. And these people could manipulate nature at will. They had complete control of the laws of nature. And when you do that, you are able to harness the serpent energy, which are the intertwining movements of the electricity and magnetism. Uh, you still see it on the logo of the medical community today, don't you? Yeah, with the, yeah, uh, the, the, old, the two snakes around it. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the doctors are messing around with snakes. It means that they are controlled in the laws of nature. It's a borrowed symbol. And it was the same thing with the people back then, uh, whether they're in Persia or South America or even uh, in uh, Portugal. There were these people called people of the serpent because they had control of the laws of nature. So it's important to understand the symbology and the metaphor behind these things. They're not meant to be taken literally. This is amazing information. I wondered if you could talk about next um, how they had to, well, I wanted to see how, how it was caught. How do you think they did the flood to wipe out the giants? I mean, I realize the giants were a problem, but do you think they set up a comet or something like that? Or Oh, it's in the, uh, it's in the Ethiopian story of uh, Enoch. Uh, Enoch is not his real name, by the way. That's a Hebrew name. Uh, and the Hebrews and the Jews uh, took the information from the Babylonians when they're in captivity. And then in order to foster, uh, you know, a greater political and spiritual uh, ideal over the people around them, 
they reinterpreted the story through their own eyes. But so did the Babylonians, because they borrowed the information from the Sumerians and they put some prejudices of their own. So every culture does this, it's not unique. And uh, if you look back at the original story, uh, you begin to look at uh, how the gods were faced with this dilemma. Uh, they are getting along just fine on earth. They've been here for thousands of years. And then uh, we have the beginning of the Younger Dryas. So this was about 12,800 BC. Um, that was the, the, the second of three major cataclysms, which happened within the space of about 3,000 years. And uh, their uh, lands where they were living, uh, which are traced to about seven or eight uh, islands around the world, most of them are now gone, by the way. And uh, they realized, being credible astronomers, that the Earth in another uh, 900 years is going to be wiped out for sure. Uh, they could project the stars. They knew what things were doing up in the sky. And there's a wonderful moment where the lords of Anu are sharing the information with this guy called Enoch. His real name was Emed Ur Anu. So the writer of the Book of Enoch was himself one of the Anunnaki. That's the story. Wow. And he just wrote everything down as he told. Yeah, you've got you to go back to the original text to find the truth, or at least be as close to the truth as possible. Um, so they were saying to him, well, you know, there are things that even we have not taught the watchers. We have complete control of the laws of nature. We can do, bend things at will. We can use the power of our intent to shape things and shape objects. And we're looking at the earth, the bastard offspring, and this is a natural quote, the bastard offspring of the fallen watchers are running amok. Uh, we have sent out the other watchers to bring them in. We don't have the manpower to handle this situation. It's out of control. Humans are not going to survive. And I thought that was a wonderful moment uh, that no one ever picks up on. And I don't know why. And I thought, what, what are they going to do next? Well, you go down a couple of paragraphs and they talk about how we have made projections of the sky. We see certain objects coming towards the earth. We're going to use the power of our will to make sure that those objects are actually going to move and collide with the earth, and we're going to generate a flood. And they gave the story to Emed Ur Anu, Enoch, and they gave the story also to a pharaoh in Egypt, about 10,000, this would have been, yes, about 10,000 BC, and they were given 300 years to prepare for a major global flood. And this is where you get the story of the pyramids coming in, where the god of wisdom, Jehuti, or Toph, as you know him, um, he was given the charge of getting together all the knowledge of tens of thousands of years of information and build buildings big enough to make sure that this stuff was not going to be destroyed. And he says, well, I think you should build some pyramids. And there's a story right there. The pyramids were built before the flood. And that makes a lot of sense. Why are these things so big? Well, because they were protecting something of great value. And the value was the knowledge that they inherited. Tens of thousands of years. This is all around, and it's corroborated in the Egyptian texts. And um, so, what they were doing is they knew that every of an asteroid field, and it happens every November. And what happens at the beginning of November in the Northern Hemisphere? We have the Day of the Dead, don't we? Uh, Samhain, as the Celtics call them, we honor the dead. And I always thought that that was just a feast honoring the spirit world until I went to the Southern Hemisphere. And whether you're in Peru, Bolivia, or the Pacific Islands, they also celebrate the Day of the Dead in November. And they shouldn't be doing that because the calendars are upside down in the Southern Hemisphere. They should be doing that in May. 
And that's where the penny dropped, that every year the earth, even today, goes right through a big mass of debris. For two weeks, we are playing dodgems with big objects. And sometimes there are bigger rocks in that stream. And once in a while, we get hit. Uh, you know, since the fire, we've had 13 near end of world extinction episodes because every year we run the same problem. It's called the torrid meteor shower. And it happens again in June, by the way, because of course you're going through a big elliptical orbit. So every uh, November, we have these major problems, and this is the moment that they picked. They knew that the, uh, the objects were coming. They knew by trajectory that there were big parts, big chunks in this particular year. And they said, you know, just to make sure that they do uh, hit us, we're going to use the power of intent to bend them towards us. That's the power that they had over the laws of nature. And guess what? Today we've done experiments at Princeton that prove that a group of people sitting in a room focusing with the intent to change the computerized drumbeat of a computer have actually been successful in changing it. This is a peer-reviewed experiment and there are others like it. And it proves that the power that we have that we're just beginning to rediscover. And it goes back to the story that I said at the beginning. How can we be like the gods? Why did the gods leave? Well, because we're now discovering that we also have the power to alter things. And also, paradoxically, we may just have the power at this moment in time to avert major catastrophe because NASA is also at this very moment every week releasing another um, text document saying we really need to keep an eye on asteroids, meteorites and meteors and they're panicking. They know that there's something big coming this way and we have now discovered using science that humans also now have the power to maybe bend those rocks out of the way. Wouldn't that be a great end to the story? You know, 12,000 years ago, the gods make the rocks uh, create a flood. And now we're going to be faced with the same problem in about 12 years, by the way. Not very long. Um, and this time, we're going to move the rocks out of the way, out of harm's way. That will be a wonderful moment in human history where suddenly we discovered spirituality, that we're all suddenly come together. That's amazing. I mean, I guess we would need the intent of probably the whole planet to, or not the whole planet, but we would need the intent of a large amount of people, I think, to generate that kind of force. Um, this is amazing stuff. Oh, much less, much less. Uh, the Transcendental Movement have done experiments, uh, actually in America. Uh, they found that just a group of 22 people in uh, like Washington, D.C. in July, which is tradi traditionally the most violent time of the year in Washington, by focusing the intent on calm, they actually dropped the uh, crime rate by 35%. And wow. if you make the trajectory from that, you only need 1% of the population, one wonderful positive you know, projection to alter the perception of how things happen. It doesn't take that many people at all. So think about that for a second. I mean, we have a huge potential sitting on this right now. It makes me think that, um, you know, what, what the media is doing to us with fear, it really throws off our psychic abilities. It really throws off our God-given abilities to use our intent to manifest a better reality. Because, I mean, I don't watch the news, but a lot of people are on watching the news. The news is pumping fear into them all day about the virus. Now we have protests. I mean, do you think this stuff is done purposefully to try to keep us dumbed down as a society, obviously? 
Only if you listen to uh, news networks that are uh, basically pushing out propaganda. Uh, I'll quote Fox News right there, because that is a propaganda network of the ultra-right-wing movement. Uh, Breitbart, all of those people are engaged in making sure that everybody, that humans are divided. They fight amongst themselves. They are in fear. This is what every single right-wing dictatorship has used as a playbook for hundreds of years. All you have to do is look at history. Um, the moment that uh, the Trump won the election uh, and the, uh, I saw what was happening, I began to go back to my time at school when I was 12 in England, where we were taught how the Third Reich was, was created. And also before that, the revolutions in Europe uh, in the 1848. And I thought, this is exactly the same mechanism at work here, to the point where I could predict what was in playbook. So it depends where you get your information from. And, and the ultra-left, of course, is equally uh, responsible too. Whenever you have an extreme opinion, you're not going to be in a good place. The idea is to go to, a, uh, to environments where the media has um, at least got people who are paid to be reporters. Real reporting is still going on. Uh, if you want to, to find out what's going on in America, by the way, you tend to go to England. Uh, go to The Guardian, by the way. Uh, they're kind of a middle-to-the-left newspaper. Every major problem that happens in America is gets released in The Guardian first. Uh, you know, they, they don't care if they bring down the British government. The idea is truth. The people have to be empowered with truth, and they can make their own decisions. The Spiegel in Germany is also another great outlet for, you know, unbiased information. They just put the facts and let you figure out what to do with them. So you've got to know where the information comes from. They're not really doing it deliberately. It's just that this is what's on people's minds. And again, it's about showing that there's a conflict, that there's a story, and that draws readership. It's about numbers in the end. It's about how much money they can make to survive to pay the bills. Uh, it's nothing worse than that. But once you start getting away from the centrist point of view and you get to the extremes, now you're just listening to absolute nonsense. Uh, I mean, there, for example, I noticed yesterday uh, just scouring Facebook. Um, and again, I just look at and see what's going on. It's important to know what's going on. The yeah. trick is not to fall in to that. You get sucked into all of that uh, negativity. The trick is to find out what the snakes are up to. You've got to know what the snakes are doing so yeah. that you are empowered. You know, you've got to know what's going on. Just don't pay too much emotion to it and find something every day that makes you happy or is positive because that's your, that's your antidote right there. So, and it gets harder sometimes. Sometimes you have to get, work really hard to find something positive. But I did notice yesterday when um, Biden, and I'm not being you know, uh, favoring one person or the other here, uh, I noticed that Biden uh, put out a, a, a memorandum about what they're going to do when he becomes president. And literally within minutes, uh, Facebook is flooded with these fake clips of uh, Biden pretending to be a pedophile, like he's, ha he's touching children and he's sort of whispering in the ears of women. And this has all been taken out of context. There's, a, you know, there's all of these supers going on there to give you the idea that he's touching children inappropriately. No, if you go back to the origin of the source of where this was filmed from, these are actual places where people have been harmed by, you know, by gunmen. They're in a, in a room and he's basically saying, well done, I'm glad you're here. He's encouraging these people after what they've been through. It's a very positive message. And if you look at the way that his hands work, the even the shots have been manipulated to look like they're actually touching breasts and things. Yeah. It's so easy to do now with media, with, you know, with clips of uh, people who are even the word, the wrong words are coming out of their head. 
It's incredible what can be done with today's technology. So you've got to be very aware that this is going on and not get sucked into it because that's yeah. what they, uh, you know, this small, tiny group of people want you to do. They want you to engage in war against ourselves. When you've done that, they won. No matter who they are, they've won. We have to work together and recognize our differences. The trick is we must respect each other in spite of the differences. That's the problem and the challenge and the great idea of being here on Earth. That's amazing. This has been amazing. That's all the questions I have about the Anunnaki, but I just have two more questions. Um, the first one has to do with crop circles. I saw you had a book on crop circles, and I've been always been so fascinated with crop circles. And I actually listened to a little bit of a lecture you did where you gave the frequencies of the crop circles. And, I mean, I heard you say there's something a little bit like a, maybe another temple. Could you talk to that? Do they have a consciousness? And what do you think we could do with crop circles? Oh, the best thing is to stick to the facts. There's a lot of disinformation and misinformation. And it's been going on since at least the uh, early 90s. Um, the real phenomenon, I should say this, uh, if you want to get involved in the real phenomenon, stick to the stuff before 2003. After 2003, most of it is fake. It's made by people. Oh, okay. uh, they are working with the farmers. They're working in huge groups. And they look fantastic from the air. But you know, to someone like me that knows what to look for, you know that the, the hand of man is all over the place. So stick to the early stuff. Because this is a communication. It's like a conversation. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end of the message. And like any conversation, this is going to end at some point. And we were told this uh, years before the crop circles uh, really came to, a, to its close. Um, I mean, maybe 1%, maybe even less every year are real. They're just like fine-tuning here and there. And what we were told was threefold. One, some of the circles are meant to uh, wake people up. They are literally working subconsciously with you. You don't even have to think about them. You just have to look at them and let that sort of subtle message or symbolism go right into your DNA. And we've proved that that actually is what's taking place. Two, there are some crop circles that are not meant for people. They're meant for the earth. And the message that we received was that there are, uh, the earth needs to evolve. Okay? It's, it's beyond due that the earth has to evolve. It does this all the time. And we need to make sure that you're aware of what's going on around you so you prepare for the big changes that are already upon you. Climate change is just one of the things that are upon us. And of course, luck always favors the prepared. The more prepared you are, the more people will survive. That's how it works. And three, there are technological blueprints in some of the designs. And the picture on the cover of my book, Secrets in the Fields, was put there deliberately. Because I know uh, what, what it does. I was given the information and I put that picture there to influence the minds of certain scientists to build an anti-gravity device. And guess what? Three different groups of scientists have built, have taken that design. Somehow it just got into the subconscious. They built it in 3D. It's, and they said it defies gravity. Uh, one's in London, one's in Australia, and one's in Oklahoma. We seem to be repeating Oklahoma a lot in this program for some reason. Yeah. Uh, you won't know who they are because they're keeping very quiet uh, for political reasons. They're waiting for the right moment to bring this information out. Right now, it's not the right moment. We'll see what happens with the next administration. Um, so it's a conversation by a consciousness. Okay, it's a, They call themselves... A, uh, uh, a superhuman consciousness. They used to be in physical form, 
and they said if you look through your earth's history you will find that we have been in physical form at specific moments where you've needed help and then we disappear poof we go back to the origin and we found that they were called watchers and that brings us back to the original story so the main core of the people and i call them people because i've had interactions with them uh, not on the physical level uh, almost uh, I gave up my job of my life to write about this because of what happened to me. Uh, I now have much more respect for people who have, for example, UFO close encounters. I know what happens in these things. And I'm saying as a UFO, for me, it was very different. It was a part of a, a connection that got me to write these books in the first place. I had no intention of writing these books um, or giving up my lovely life. It's a big of a challenge. So there must be something to it. And they were saying, you know what? Um, we have, uh, you know, we used to come around at times when you've needed help. And this time we've stopped coming in physical form because frankly, we got tired of being crucified and being bullied by bad humans. It hurts when you're in physical form. So now we're suggesting through symbols in the fields and we're going to leave it up to you to figure it out. And some people will disagree. Some will agree. Some will give up their lives and write books and promote this stuff but it will engage in human consciousness. It will interact with your consciousness and it will help evolve people, but you have to want it. It's not like we're gonna do things for you. You have to want this change. We're giving you the tools, so it's now up to you to do whatever you want with them. Boom, and off they go. So that's essentially what's behind it. It's a super, uh, um, it's a universal consciousness, basically. They're the teachers, they're the guides. And if you talk to Native Americans, if you talk to the Zuni or the White Tahara of New Zealand, the Polynesians and so forth, they'll say, actually, we're still in touch with them, these uh, consciousness, and they give us our information. They, we know what's coming, we prepare, and we develop our knowledge from them. This is the way it's been for over 10,000 years. So this is a, a, an umbilical core that we've had with these what we call angelic beings, if you want to be in the Greek Christian era, uh, we call them the angels. And that's the reason why they always appear with wings, because they are of the sky. They are not actually physical form. That's where the information comes from. So we're still getting information, we're still getting assistance, but it's up to us to actually implement it. And, uh, you know, and the changes that we're seeing around us right now, I think that we are making progress. Uh, if you talk to a physicist and you said, describe the universe, and any physicist will say, well, there are only two things in the universe. There's order and there's chaos. That's all there is. And the bit in between. And they'll say, the greater the amount of chaos, the greater the potential jump to a higher level of order. So if you think that everything is very chaotic around us right now, think of the huge potential that we have right now to jump to a new level of order. The new generation is going to inherit, inherit something extraordinary. If we just keep our calm and keep our focus, that's the purpose. That's, that's amazing. And oh, I just had a quick question on the Anunnaki real quick. Do you think, this is a question, I, I had it written down here, I'm looking on my computer and I forgot to ask you. Do you think the Greeks and Romans just copied Sumerian god names and, and changed them like Enlil became Zeus? And, and then wait, and then, or do you think they had actually experiences with gods, like somebody saw Zeus on Mount Olympus? What are your thoughts? And they absolutely did. They just borrowed from earlier cultures. And in fact, if you look at the uh, Sumerian and the Egyptian cultures, there's a, uh, and you look at the Greek, the Greeks translated everything into their own image because they couldn't go to Greece and say, hey, 
we're going to talk about uh, this guy called Asar and Isa. And they'll go, and the Greeks went, what? Oh, all right. Osiris and Isis. Uh, those are Greek names. Uh, the original name is Asar. That's the original uh, Egyptian name. And it was the same thing with the Sumerians. Uh, they uh, inherited the information and they had to transcribe it for a different culture, a different group of people. Uh, if you look at the story of Dory of Isis and Osiris, and then the Arthurian story is a retelling of Jason and the Argonauts. It's the same story written for a different era and a different audience. Uh, so, and, here, and there's a, there is a surviving clip from one of the Egyptian mystery schools that talks about a Greek scholar called Solon that uh, used to come to Alexandria when the library was there. Actually, no, it precedes the library, I beg your pardon. And they said, you know what, you Greeks are so young. You know nothing of the world. Wait until you hear about the Egyptians. We've been here for over 39,000 years, and we've recorded every major event onto the walls of our temple. Uh, you guys basically are children in our eyes. And they're not being condescending. They're just having a good laugh at their expense. And Solon takes these stories back to Greece with them. And the one person that read these stories was Plato, from whom he wrote that based the story of Atlantis. It's, it's based on the Egyptian story of this island called Iutiti, which is actually a short version for Lake Titicaca, where there's another group of gods called the Haiwaiwapanti, who literally means the shining people, the shining ones. Wow. So Tiwanaku, Kumapunku, that is part of the tradition of the lords of Anu and the Egyptian gods. They're all one tribe of people, of tribe of gods. So yeah, the, uh, by the time you get to the Romans, they had no idea what the hell they were doing. They just copied everybody else uh, because they had to maintain control of the people. And the way you do that is to invent religion, uh, invent the Catholic Church, which has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, by the way, if you do your research. They invented these gods and things because the, uh, the people were so used to glorifying people who were better than them and bigger than them and had these ideals. But that wasn't the point. The original idea was to use a god as a kind of a figurehead, someone you should uh, imitate because they stood for right action. Uh, so you'd always think about the god of wisdom or the god of architecture, uh, someone that you could focus on who set a good example, and then you follow that example. It wasn't about worshipping. That is not what it was about. But by the time we get to the Romans, they had no idea what the hell they were doing. Uh, all you had was superstition. So you see the, the wisdom, after thousands of years, degrades into superstition because the original meaning has been lost. And then the last question I have, and thank you so much. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm, a, I'm a such a history person. I love history. That's how I found about the, the Anunnaki, because I was researching ancient history about three or four years ago, just to tell you my background. But anyway, can you talk about the Jesus archetype, and was he ever a real person, or was this someone, because he has the same name as Mithra, the same name as Krishna, the same name as Dionysus. It seems like it's a copy character, but was there ever a real person? Yeah, there was. Uh, there was a historical Jesus. His name was Yeshua ben Yosef. And um, the, 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 it's, it's a yes and no story again, because you have to understand initiation and the power of metaphor. The way that these stories were able to maintain their integrity over thousands of years is to veil them in allegory, metaphor, and symbolism. 
because the information that was conveyed was so powerful. I mean, if you're going to learn about manipulating the laws of nature, you have to protect that from people who are going to use that for all kinds of bad reasons. And there's a lot of people who would use that for wrong action. So they would use the story of the metaphor to entice people to set aside anything between three to 10 years to learn about the mysteries of the universe, life, nature, and how to harness it, and the power of intent in order to manipulate things. But at the end, there was an initiation. The final step of the input space, or go into a box where you take a narcotic, a poison actually, and you'd have an induced near-death experience. You actually left the body, not a shamanic experience. You left the body for three days and three nights. You went into the other world, and you came back with knowledge of what happens in the bigger scheme of things. You came back as a god. Sorry about the Harley Davidson. That's all right. Um, <laughs> you came back as a god, and at that moment, you were taken out of the box, and you were declared risen from the dead. That's and amazing. The oldest version of that story is in Japan in 8000 BC. The second time you see that is in 6500 BC in India. Mithra, who was born of a, a, a pure family, like a virgin. Uh, and then he disappears for a goodly amount of his time, goes walk about on a hill, uh, discovers something incredible. He goes into an otherworld journey on the winter solstice reappears three days later, resurrected from the dead, and is figuratively, not ritually, nailed to a tree because it's the it's spiritualized human nailed to the tree of matter, okay? You have one foot in both worlds. That's what the symbol of crucifixion in that context is all about. And on the 25th of December, he's declared a God-man. So you're absolutely right. It's the same individual and yet not because it's a symbol that goes from culture to culture to culture to culture. Osiris was the other version of that story. Uh, you have other stories all around the world. In fact, there were people, there's what, I believe there's over 140 uh, godmen who, you know, are, uh, go away for 40 days on a special hill. They're crucified, sorry, they go into the other world for three days. They get nailed to a, a wooden structure and three days later they declared gods and they go on to teach a great religion to the people. And then boom, they disappear. Uh, Jesus was one of the last iterations of that concept because he belonged to the spiritual teachings of the Essenes who got their information from the Persians, who got their information from the Indians, and they got the information from the, uh, the Japanese. The story keeps going westwards along that part of the world all the time. In fact, Native Americans have exactly the same story too. Uh, there's a guy called Iga Isu in 2000 BC who was figuratively nailed to a cross and then gets out three days later. Uh, the same story in Japan as well. So Jesus was a real person. He was following the path of the initiate. This is where Christianity, Gnostic Christianity, and Catholicism go that way. Because the early Christians, and I wrote a whole book on this called The Last Art of Resurrection, um, they were talking about how they were really pissed off about the with the fundamentalist Christians who were mistaking a spiritual concept with an actual truth. Uh, they were saying, no, they never nailed Jesus to a cross. You're confusing a spiritual angle with an actual event. Uh, a, a crucifixion was meant for people who were broken Roman, broke any Roman law. That's the problem that Pontius Pilate with Jesus and he says and this is actually one of the truths of the Bible I can't kill the guy he hasn't broken our laws what am I supposed to do is the Hebrews the um, the rabbis here yeah, that's gonna put him out of a job 
they need to be the intermediary between an outer God and you. That's where the problem goes wrong with religion and spirituality. Because as Jesus and Buddha talk to God, you already are a God. You're an image of God. God is in here. Not out there. It's in here. That is very bad for business, my friend. That's going to yeah. put a lot of people out of work. And that's where Catholicism comes in. And then you have the entire story completely re rewritten. Um, I did draw on the research of a very famous guy called Michael Bajant. He was one of the three people that co-wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail. So if you follow that story about the true lineage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and it's very well researched, regardless of your opinion on it, he wrote another book, which few people know of, called The Jesus Papers. And I actually uh, uh, used his research because, and credited him, of course, because he was a theologian researcher. He had access to a lot of books that we don't get uh, access to. And he asked the same question, was Jesus a metaphor or a real person? And he'll tell you the same thing. Real person, but he was also a metaphor. He was following a tradition. And the uh, confusion comes in, well, how did it get away with describing so much in the Bible about the trial of Jesus and then the crucifixion, and then he gets up from the dead? And he wrote a very, very succinct argument based on available information. And to cut a long story short, he said, actually, if you follow the trajectory of the unwritten story, which is I was able to find in scripts here, there, and other, and other archives, and of course, in the Vatican Library as well. And he said, you know, it's funny, the guy that you have to keep your eye on is Joseph of Arimathea. He's the key to the whole story. Highly influential uh, Jewish man, great trader, very rich, and also part of a divine bloodline that came from all the way from Sumeria. These were wow. blue blood people. He had a big sort of pull on Pontius Pilate and Herod and all those people. Very influential. And he said, you know what? I hear that you got a problem with Yeshua uh, ben Yosef and he's kicking up trouble. You don't want this trouble to go back to Rome. You want to keep the people under control, but you can't kill him either. He has a broken Roman law. And Pontius said, actually, yeah, wouldn't mind if you took him off my hands. I said, I can do that. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to crucify him on my plot of land, which happens to be a quarter of a mile from the hill of Golgotha, which is where they actually did the actual crucifixions of criminals. So there's the association, only a quarter of a mile away, not on the hill itself, but a quarter of a mile is fairly close. And the nearest eyewitnesses were a quarter of a mile away. Now, in the heat rising out of Jerusalem, uh, you can be watching anything going up on a cross from a quarter of a mile away because of all the heat coming out of the soil. Uh, it could be a rabbit tied to a, to a cross from that distance. And yeah. what they did was they reenacted his initiation. Mary Magdalene, who's the other key to the story, she was the highest level of initiate in that mystery tradition. She was the wisdom keeper. The woman always had the highest level of initiation. And she, in, in that case, she would have known about drugs, poisons, and the antidotes. So when he's given the sponge with vinegar, that is laced with a narcotic, which it's, it's from, comes from the liver of the pufferfish. And even in medieval Europe, they knew about simulated death. They administered the um, poison from the liver of the pufferfish. And to all intents and purposes, you look like you're dead. You're not even breathing. You're blue. And that's what happened. They gave him a narcotic. So anybody that got closer to the cross saw a guy wrapped, you know, with his arms wrapped around the cross, must have nailed, and he looks like he's dead. And the mob went home and said, oh, we finally killed Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And they all went home. Well, they take him down, they put him in a cave, and the first witness 
to his miraculous resurrection is not Peter, it's Mary Magdalene. There's a soul story right there because wow. she was married to Jesus. And at that point, Jesus can't appear in Jerusalem anymore. He has to disappear, right? So what happens? Mary Magdalene is pregnant. Uh, if you're carrying the bloodline and people are after you, what are you going to do? Well, it's like your bank account. If you have a lot of money, you don't put all your money in one bank account. You split it up. She goes to France, lands near Marseille, disappears, vanishes from view. Jesus, the Indians will tell you, went to Kashmir. His grave is still there. He dies at the age of 80, uh, and he spent most of his life having big arguments with the local people on philosophical matters, which exactly matches the uh, profile of Jesus as a young person, as a, an argumenter in terms of, you know, discussing things. So that's pretty much in a nutshell what happened in the area of Jesus, a real man, but in an initiate as well. And you separate the initiation from the actual event. And this is where the church concocts the story because back of Jesus, to, to, uh, well, they did actually, they took the story of Jesus to Rome. No one believed the story. It didn't wash. He was an average Joe who did something miraculous. They went, well, that's no good. We need a God. We only worship gods. So the church fathers put pressure on, said, I already have a religion. It's called Mithraism. So on his deathbed, guess what happens? He got fed up of being badgered by the church. He just takes the word Mithra out of the story and puts Jesus in. And that's why the story of Jesus and the story of Mithra are one and the same story. There's, there's the answer right there. So that's real research. Uh, yeah. And the more people kind of find out about that, the more they go, oh, so there's, Christianity and then this Catholicism said, yeah, Christianity is actually a very interesting concept. If you go back to the original source, it's a bit like Buddhism or like Zen. Catholicism, no relationship to Jesus' teachings. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I won't take up much more of your time. This has been, I love, I love learning. And um, this was such a learning experience for me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll send you a link when I put upload it. All right, thanks.